Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I shall be reviewing a film for you today from the 1960s. You may have already got enough of your fix from my 60s episode in the Decade series that I've just finished, but in case you want a bit more, here's one more for you. A classic to behold, a Stanley Kubrick film, which you won't always associate with Stanley Kubrick, uh, and that is the 1960 film Spartacus. But I can't do this alone because I do know someone who can help me with this. And I brought her in specially just to talk about this film, as I know she likes good gladiator film every now and again as well. And, you know, who doesn't love Kirk Douglas? So uh, I'm just going to get straight to it. My special guest today is a she was one of my former lecturers from my uni days. I'll get her to talk about herself a little bit more in a minute, but I would just let her take the floor. It is Lindsay Steenberg. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm well, thank you very much. Yes, it's nice to see you and hear you as this is a podcast. I just, you know, it, it wouldn't be fun if I wasn't talking about gladiator movies. When I thought about reviewing a classic film such as this one, I thought, you know what, I'm going to look at some Kubrick films on their own. I've done a collaboration episode with another podcaster on uh, The Shining. Uh, I've looked at a couple of others in part here and there, but I was thinking, don't often hear much about Spartacus, and I knew just the person to get. So, yeah, it's good to have you on the podcast today. (laughs) It does indeed. So before we get started, obviously, for anyone who doesn't know Spartacus, we may go into spoiler territory here, so because we're going to just discuss a few bits and pieces here and there. So if you haven't watched it, please pause us now and watch the film. But for now... We're talking about Spartacus, like I just said, the 1960 film directed by Stanley Kubrick. It was written, but the screenplay was written by Dalton Trumbo, who I will probably mention a bit more as we get on into this podcast. He was part of the famous Hollywood 10 back in the 1950s, 60s era of Hollywood. And there's lots of talk to be had about that subject, but we'll get into that in a moment. Uh, And the film itself is based on the 1951 novel by Howard Fast of the same name, Spartacus. First of all, Lindsay, before we get into Spartacus, and now we've set ourselves up for the episode, just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what it is you do. Obviously, I gave you a mini introduction, but would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and what your affinity is with film in general? Absolutely. So like you mentioned, yes, I I was one of your lecturers and you worked very hard. Well done. So um, I am a reader in film studies. So I teach here at Oxford Brooks and I also do a lot of research. And my main area of research is widely violence in the media. But most specifically, I've just finished a large scale project mapping gladiator movies. So, you know, I, I love action films. I love crime films. I love talking about about violence and crime and and all kinds of fighting. What I've just sort of recently spent several years doing is just basically trying to figure out where these kinds of films come from, how they act, what what sort of wider cultural patterns they can kind of show us. So I guess that's my sort of basic introduction. Um, and my book just came out at the end of last year. So it was a, a bit of a lockdown book. I was hoping for, for a book launch, you know, like a toga party or something like that. So I'll just have to wait until until Boris Johnson tells me I'm allowed to celebrate with togas. And so I've just finished that, and now I'm just currently queued up to begin an, a, a newer project that maps fight scenes in American cinema in the digital age. So that that's that's what I study, and it's a little bit what I teach. Um, although I think, for the most part, I, I, I didn't teach you too many action films, not too many gladiator <laughs> films, but maybe the students of the future will be suffering a little bit more of that. 
absolutely i could not uh like it, all the stuff that you're working on is so exciting like for those of you guys who don't know obviously please do we'll probably plug the book at the end but like please check Lindsay's workout because there's some interesting stuff there she's got great insight and yeah if you love gladiators this is the place to be this is definitely and the place to love be a gladiator yeah. everybody loves a gladiator everyone loves a gladiator uh specifically though Spartacus, which we are here to talk about today. Now, like I just said, I gave you everybody a bit of a rundown of what it's about, who it was by, and all that stuff like that. Also, just for anyone who is a bit more of a Hollywood star fan, so they're fans of the actual actors, it stars Kirk Douglas as the lead character Spartacus, uh, Lawrence Olivier as Crassus, Gene Simmons as Verinia, and it also co-stars as well Peter Ustinov, Tony Curtis, and John Gavin. John Gavin specifically playing Julius Caesar. Where I'm just like, I was waiting for him to, I'll be honest, I'll start this off with, I was waiting for, you know, a big Julius Caesar moment. But like, I, I think we've got to let Olivier have his time on screen. What would you say? Yeah, it was never about Caesar. It was, it was never really about Caesar in this one, was it? What I would say that whilst we, well, later on, we will move on to comparing it a little bit to films of a similar ilk. So there's quite a few that spring to mind, which I'll bring on to later in the conversation. I just wanted to start you off with why you like Spartacus so much, what, or, what, or if you like many parts of it. I know you like many other Gladiator films, but what particularly stands out to you as your favourite moment from Spartacus? What really makes it jump out to you? Um, so, yeah, I, do, I really do like Spartacus. And of, of all the, when people sort of hear that I write about Gladiator movies and they ask me, well, which one is the best? There are so many delightfully bad ones of them <laughs> that when they ask me what the best one is, I kind of have to hesitate a little. But when I do think of what is one of the better crafted, more interesting films which have gladiator characters in them that Kubrick's films brings to mind. So I think it just, you know, it tells an interesting story. And, and I've, <laughs> of course, now that you've heard my brief introduction to myself, I'm a lot of it in it for the fighting. <laughs> so, so among my most favorite moments are some of the arena sequences in that in that film. So there's around seven of them and they all sort of function as these, these little mini, mini movies in and of themselves. And my absolute favorite one is towards the beginning of the film when Crassus, so Laurence Olivier um, and, and his, his wife in the film and, and sort of these noble aristocrats are coming to watch a kind of practice gladiator fight and they want to pick which gladiators they're going to see fight and, and that one and they decide they want the most beautiful ones so they pick Kirk Douglas and uh, Woody Strode who stars in the film as, as Drava one of the other gladiators and they, they kind of have this big fight which is quite spectacular there's nets there's tridents it's got everything that you might want and at the end and again we said there might not be spoilers but there will be here so avert your ears people um, at the end of this practice match the noble women are like they're, they're really excited to see the fight. And Woody Strode's Drava wins, you know, so he's got Kirk Douglas in a net with a kind of trident at his throat and they're yelling at him to kill Kirk Douglas, but he doesn't. He mm. turns to look at them and attacks them. And I think it's one of the, the best films, uh, best moments of the film. And I think it's also one of the more tragic moments of the film because he's, he's ultimately killed. He's that moment he's saying, you know what? I'm not your minion. I will not perform for you in this way. I won't kill one of my compatriots I'm going after you and and he sort of jumps up the side of the amphitheater and he kind of like reaches out to Lawrence uh, Olivier's character who sort of after he's speared from behind stabs him in the back of the neck with a kind of very kind of graceful <laughs> knife move and then sort of looks a little disgusted and pushes him off 
So it's it's just it's kind of got everything that the movie's about there about this kind of solidarity between the gladiator characters, the action, the sort of working men refusing to be the playthings of wealthy men and sort of actively violently saying no, I'm I I will not fight for your entertainment. I I don't I'm not going to stay in the amphitheater. I'm going to escape. So that's my that's my favorite part of the movie. Although oh. I'm Spartacus, I mean that's also a wonderful part of the film. I, I mean, I will get back onto I'm Sparskus a little in, in just a moment. Cool. But yeah, no, absolutely. That opening, that whole sequence uh, is kind of demonstrating a sense of, I suppose, solidarity then amongst the suppressed absolutely. in against it. So, you know, really banding together to be like, do you know what? We may be the playthings of the Romans right now, but we're going to make a stand. And essentially, for anyone who hasn't seen Spartacus, obviously, you just listen to that and you haven't seen it. That's a nice little preview for you. The thing I would say about Spartacus, it's a story of rebellion. It's a rebellion against the Roman Empire. Obviously, if you've seen the film, you'll know that it doesn't always go exactly to plan. And it's not exactly the most happiest of endings in ter- for all of our characters. Some of them have like a great release and a bit of uh, escape, shall we say. But mm-hmm. most of them do not in a lot of respects, especially after what I would say, moving on from like your favorite moment. I think one of my highlights is probably the massive fight sequences, the big battle sequences, which I was actually thinking, I was watching the film the other day because I wanted to refresh my mind. And I was really thinking, do you know what? I think cinema of today has really lost it in terms of big, giant, grandiose action scenes. Because nowadays you'd probably have a CGI army or even if they were real people, they'd be like the same 20 people multiplied in a computer. Yeah. Which I know those obviously... kind of crown generation software has made a big difference, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Which if there was no crowd generation software for Spartacus. Those Ex- were actual people. Exactly. And to be honest, I think whilst it's very useful and economical in some respects, because you can't always afford to have I mean, obviously in the times that we're living in, as I'm recording this, uh, you know, you can't afford to have big massive crowds together. So crowd creating software is probably a very good thing to have right now. But you can't really beat the authenticity of having a genuinely massive I don't even know how many i don't have like thousands of thousands of people on set and also because it's shot in a wide frame as well it looks i think it was like pan vision or something 70 70 or something like that it's just such a wide vista and you see this lovely landscape on both sides of the fight so we get the rebellion and then we get, I sound like I'm talk, talking about Star Wars right now, which is funny. Um, the, you got well, the re- you know, mythic battles, rebellion, corrupt <laughs> empires. There's it's, something there. Exactly. There is, so you got the rebellion and then you got the Romans. It doesn't sound as good as the, the rebellion and the Republic. <laughs> it sounds good. Uh, no, the rebellion versus the Roman Empire. And you get each angle and you think, oh, it looks really just as they're like, it's kind of got a Western feel, I felt, in the sense that a yeah. bit more of a grand epic scale, in my opinion. When you get the likes of the good, the bad, the ugly, you get the film where, you know, the stare, the classic stare of Clint Eastwood yeah. and Man With No Name, where they look at each other and you cut between each of the views. It's very much like that, except we've got two God's eye perspectives, as it were, one from one side on the Romans and one on the side of rebellion against the Romans. And I just think... Going back to my original point, the fact that it's got so many people in the frame, actual people that were actually on set, it must mm-hmm. have been an, a nightmare. I can imagine a nightmare to organize on set in terms of production. But I genuinely yes. think it's a really, 
very well shot piece of cinema. It's amazing to watch, really. Like, I love the intimate stuff, like you mentioned, with you know the fights and the character two moments. The, yeah. yeah, actual two handers, or even just small groups where you're very intimate on the screen. But I think that's where the fact that it's shot in such a wide vista, you get this nice yeah. sense of. I you know, this is a where, grand epic. It's an epic film. This is where, yeah, epic filmmaking and, and the cinema as an experience come into it. The one thing sometimes I wonder about is when I when I teach Spartacus, when I have students watch it, is you have this cast of thousands, you have this huge wide screen. Does that come across when one watches it on a smaller scale? So if you if you were watching Spartacus on your phone, it, it's almost like that doesn't even matter because it's so tiny. So yeah. I think... What I love about Spartacus and a lot of those epic films that came out around that time um, is just how big the frame is and how much is happening inside it. So if you're watching it in a cinema where it is giant, the luxury of being able to look anywhere in the frame and see how everything is so thoughtfully composed is one of the great pleasures of epic cinema. And sometimes, you know, when you do have that computer animation that, that lends itself often quite well to a smaller screen, I just, you know, I like the break of a moment where you can just sort of watch that action unfold in the in a wider screen and a longer take and really kind of enjoy what mm. cinema was able to able to offer at that time the yeah. spectacle sort of moving on from so i like the battle scene the battle oh. sequence looks great and it looks epic but the wide frame you think oh for like a, a moment with just one person speaking on screen you don't think you might think oh, why do you need the wide frame but actually it benefits it so well because of the way it was shot as well because although i will get onto this in just a moment that it's not the most kubrick of kubrick films uh, which mm -hmm. i'll ask your opinion of in just a second but the moment for me along with the battle sequence itself and i am spartacus because you know everyone knows that scene if you've seen it or even if you everyone don't you kn you know it but the bit i like is the speech made by it's kind of it's cross cut cut between two speeches so we've got spartacus giving a big grand speech uh, where he speaks to yes. his all his followers all the rebellion and then you get i think it's crassus talking to his roman legions and being like we're gonna go and head on for this fight we're gonna tackle it head on and we're gonna you know we're gonna win both sides are thinking we're gonna win and it's a great emotional scene where only two people are speaking and you think mm. oh you could do a lot of that in a medium close-up nowadays but in that's the wide vista framework that's being used really is really nice because you get to you get the close-ups of them medium close-ups to see their emotion on their faces but you also get to see i think more for spartacus's band than anything else because yeah. you get to see them on the hills you know that they want to be free and that they're in the open air and that sort of symbolizes their lovely yeah. sense of camaraderie and we're gonna win out here we're not hiding behind massive coliseums they start off majority of the character all the characters in spartacus's legion then are all slaves to start with for the best part of the beginning of the film so the fact that they're Absolutely. outside is is great symbolism for the fact that they've made it out and they want to battle on their own turf but obviously it doesn't always yeah. doesn't go to plan by the end of it, it but um, it's a great raw scene i think what would you say it gives it well it gives it the the weight of history to know the stakes of what's being fought for in this point so it's not just about the charisma of a leader um and i think that's what the message certainly behind Fast's novel, which was very, very political, but Kubrick's film as well, um, just to give it that weight of history, um, the stakes being so high, because here are all the people who are involved, but also to move it away from as much of a kind of cult of, of a charismatic leader. And both Kirk Douglas and Laurence Olivier are charismatic leaders, but they're more than that. They are representatives of their group of people, because 
a lot of people like to talk about this film as being very allegorical for what's happening in America. So these, you know, this this kind of camaraderie, this equality, this belonging together, that sort of has a, a little hint of socialism about it was something that was widely discussed and still is. So the fact that Spartacus is there with his big army, he's one of them, he's speaking for them, he represents them, but he's not above them in that sense. So you get him in the shot with them. And that's, that's what the I am Spartacus scene also delivers. Now, the I am Spartacus scene is amazing, but has been, I think, somewhat, because it is so, you know, affective, it's been parodied so often that now I can't watch it without giggling just a little bit because I watched Horrible Histories and they said I'm Spartacus and I thought that was maybe the funniest thing ever. Um, So it's been so widely parodied, but it is this tremendous moment of of recognition, of ritual renaming, of solidarity. So those shots where, you know, Spartacus is with his army, I, I think they're they are really, really powerful moments. Yeah, no, exactly. Couldn't agree more. You actually bring up two very interesting points, really, actually. Two points which I did want to build on a little bit extra. Uh, we'll sort of lightly touch on, so like you say, there's part one would be what the I am Spartacus scene and just the general feeling of camaraderie amongst Spartacus and his fellow former slaves. That is very much, it's always been talked about as representative of what was going on at the time. And I mentioned this at the beginning, but the specifically the Hollywood 10, which for anyone who doesn't know anything about the Hollywood 10 is an interesting topic. If you want to learn about the slightly, well, one of the many darker sides to classical Hollywood. There's lots of dark sides in classic Hollywood, but this is one of them. And probably it's still a case of othering people and it makes people into outcasts of of their time. And specifically why it's called the Hollywood 10, a group of screenwriters were blacklisted back in the 1950s, 1960s, because they were assumed to have had connections and sympathies with the communist ideology and the things that were going on with Russia at the time. And obviously, contextually, America and Russia weren't very good friends at the time. And there was a lot of like the Red Scare, lots of tension being built at the time. America didn't want any of that. So and Hollywood was very much at the center politics and Hollywood very much intertwined. If anyone's seen the Netflix film by David Fincher, Mank, you will notice the hints of politics and movie making mixing together quite well that sort of gives you a hint of it but then specifically a key text which i think i would encourage anyone to watch i don't know whether you've seen this Lindsay. the i think it's the 2015 film i think it is but it's got brian cranston starring as dalton trumbo who i mentioned earlier who wrote the screenplay for spartacus and essentially kirk douglas fought his way to make the screen credit appear on the screen as dalton trumbo rather than some pen name even though Dalton Trumbo did a lot of the work on it. And because he was one of the blacklisted writers and he wasn't going to put his name to anything. He always had like a fake name, pseudonym to be put across for some films. I think it's Roman Holiday, I believe he was originally, he actually wrote it, but another name was used, but he did sort of get honorarily mentioned later on for contributing to that film. But the main point with Trumbo is there's a lovely sequence where we actually go to a recreation of the Spartacus set and we meet a strange depiction of Kubrick. It's a very small depiction of of Stanley Kubrick on set, Mm -hmm. but I think it's, I don't know, have you ever seen that film before? I haven't seen that film actually, which is slightly shameful, but um, I mean, there's there's not enough explosions in it for me. Um, but absolutely that that though that moment of blacklisting is so important for Spartacus um, and this is one of Kubrick's earlier films as well this this is at the forefront of that so that kind of allegorical nature of the film itself and also 
the Howard Foss novel, and indeed the, the story of Spartacus. So this is based on a true story. So, you know, we were concerned about spoilers, but we oughtn't because we all know what happened to Spartacus. It mm. wasn't great. Um, but it is this story about resisting oppression and unequal systems and everything like that. So that that kind of notion of resistance, of solidarity, of kind of fraternity is part of sort of almost all aspects of this film. The Spartacus story, which was, in fact, Spartacus did fight the Roman Republic. It wasn't yet an empire. So some, you know, some historians even think that the Spartacus rebellion was the moment that actually made some of the imperial stuff that followed possible because they gathered together to fight him. So even from that moment, and then the, the Hollywood blacklisting system, the sort of all the, the kind of aspects of Spartacus are ones that have this political thematics written into them, into their into their DNA almost. So I think, yeah, it's it's a really interesting film to study, as, along with other ones. I mean, if you like a good Hollywood allegory, I love High Noon for this oh, um, yes. the Western with Gary Cooper, um, you know, and everybody turns against him. And it's all about this, this suspicion of other people, whereas Spartacus is about an open defiance and a kind of a band together. So, you know, a, a good Hollywood allegory, sort of mm. speaking where they can't speak directly through these kinds of stories and well-worn genres is always a, a kind of political joy to watch. It's such a rich text. We go through so much to analyze it, but really just appreciating like the general message of it. Even if you just look at one area of it, it's just such an interesting film to look at. But like I said, just sort of relate back to, so that's Trumbo, a film from 2015. It's got Brian Cranston's Dalton Trumbo. And it's also got Helen Mirren as Hedda Hopper as well, which is very interesting, a casting choice as well. Considering, I think it wasn't it, I want to say it's Uma Thurman or someone like that in the in Hail Caesar who played Hedda uh, Tuva. Oh, Hedda. Yes. I think it was Uma Thurman. <laughs> <laughs> but it was she's such an interesting character that has been, and she actually appears, I touched on this in my 50s episode of The Decades, but she features in as herself in Sunset Boulevard. And, you know, talking about Hollywood allegories and stuff like that I think they're sometimes the best films like the ones that mm -hmm. really speak to people of today because some people always talk about films dating and I'm, in a minute I'm going to sort of ask your opinion about running times and such uh, with films <laughs> oh, like yes. this but I would say films that are so self-reflexive and they look at themselves hard and their industry itself really really give a hard long look in the mirror at themselves and think you know this is the problem this is this we're not going to tell it exactly word for word but we're going to show it in a way that is very sparkly and jazzy on one hand because it's the movies but then there's a serious mm -hmm. message at the end of it because you've got the demise of silent era hollywood with singing in the likes of singing in the rain and uh, Sunset Boulevard, which both come in the yes, space of two of years of each other. This one was obviously dealing with much more deeper political things rather than actual just like the stardom side of things in Hollywood. But, you know, I think yeah. self-reflexive Hollywood is very, and it's sort of slowly coming back as well, I've noticed, because like I, ma I mentioned Hail Caesar from the Coen Brothers, and yeah. you've got films like La La Land who like to look at the golden age of Hollywood and use it as like a pretty yes. aesthetic thing. But other than that, really, you know, I think they're genuinely a delight to watch. Hollywood loves yeah. to tell its own story. It likes to tell it over and over again, and it can do it in the way that, you know, that kind of crit self-critiquing kind of way or, or investigating things that might not be working, or like La La Land to a certain extent, just a plain old celebration of the movies. And there are films like The Artist that, that kind of hovers between this delight in old movie making, but also the way that it kind of broke people as well. So yeah, Hollywood will be telling its own story <laughs> for years to come it just it really likes that one 
and that I think segues nicely into uh, the next point, which you brought up a second ago, is the fact that this film has been parodied, specifically I'm Spartacus, to death. It's been parodied to yes. death. Specifically, there's one example which I can bring up quite easily because I know and love it from an early age. I remember watching it and still laugh at it to this day. I'm not a huge Monty Python fan, I will say now, but oh. <laughs> I do like I do like Monty Python's The Life of Brian from 1979. And also the funny thing with Life of Brian, obviously, I just said it's 1979. It's not really that long a time between, like, obviously, I know 10 years is quite a long time, but it's, you know, well, I say over 10, nearly 20 years, nearly 20 years, but yeah. it still doesn't feel like when you look at it on the written page, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago since Spartacus graced the screens in 1960 and maybe a little bit after. To the 1970s afterwards, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, too, what's so interesting is that Life of Brian, I mean, what they had as well wasn't just Spartacus in their their kind of memory, cultural memory banks, yeah. but between the sort of late 50s and the late 60s, even up into the 70s, gladiator movies were huge. They were mostly co-productions or, or Italian-based productions, and they took certain elements of Spartacus, the way they told their stories of the amphitheaters, the costuming, the kind of um, the mytho-historical settings. So there had been that whole series of films. So I think The Life of Brian... Has, it has an arena fight in it. I looked at that one. It's hilarious. He wins his gladiator fight because the uh, the gladiator has a heart attack um, from chasing him around the amphitheater, which is lovely. But it does, yeah, it, it does take the advantage of being able to parody Spartacus, but also every single other cheaply made sword and sandal film, every sort of very serious biblical epic, all the movie making that had come around the time of Spartacus. So I think it offers you almost like a gateway into what was happening in the previous, say, 15 years of the film. They really, especially biblical epics, they, they send yes. those up delightfully. Oh, yes, exactly. I, I mean, to be honest, I'm not even ashamed to say that I saw The Life of Brian before I saw Spartacus. <laughs> I literally, that was my gateway because uh, I watched it and obviously think I knew about I'm Spartacus, that scene from the original film in my head. Yeah. I'd, I'd seen clips of it in document, like the odd clip show of stuff and whatnot. But I really, really did begin my journey with I'm Brian. I'm Brian. And obviously, because I yeah. thought it was when I watched it, I was at an age where I didn't not understand movies referencing other movies. I did understand that. And I think I'd heard that it referenced it. But even when I watched it the first time, I thought it's funny, but it sounds like something else. Because obviously, he's saying I'm Brian and it was grand music, but it was really funny. And I just, yeah. I, I could tell even before I researched it and looked into it properly that this was clearly a parody of something that was probably a lot more serious. And uh, boy, was I right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I've um, actually in, in other work that I've I've published, um, I've talked a lot about how children's television and cinema in particular puts in references to films, especially classical Hollywood films, but sometimes television shows that children would not have seen, and nor does the text expect them to have seen, but it puts those references in. Like there's a, a Sesame Street Game of Thrones parody. No kid watching Sesame Street, for the love of God, I hope, has seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> But they put game of chairs in and they have this hilarious game or, you know, my argument was about the movie Frozen, where I suggest it uses quite a few film noir tropes without ever expecting its audiences to have seen them. But those references, they become a kind of currency from a very, very young media consumption age so that, you know, I'm Spartacus, you understand a femme fatale, even if you've never seen a film noir, even if you've never seen Spartacus, and they become this kind of well-worn fabric of the media that we all sort of live in 
comfortably without having seen the original. I mean, you know, not to say that's bad or good, but it's for me, it's a fascinating process of how nostalgia works. You don't have to see the thing you're nostalgic for. You just sort of absorb it <laughs> in all these different <laughs> places and it becomes a part of your experience. So now you experience Spartacus through the life of Brian <laughs> or through horrible histories, you know, if you're you know, that 10 year old. So, you know, it's funny, but then for me, it's like, okay, so... My children watched quite a bit of horrible histories. They like a lot of that. So do I, because I have the sense of humor, apparently, of an eight-year-old. Um, and fart jokes are hilarious. So they now when they watch Spartacus, I swear they're going to giggle. They're, they're going to see this, this sort of like really heart-rending moment of solidarity and be like, <laughs> you know what's funny? Uh, so I just, you know, it's just interesting to see the way that nostalgia and those kind of references and culture sort of move in all these different directions and create all these different emotional reactions to texts, especially mm. if you've seen that other one before you see the first one. I couldn't agree more. It's honestly, I, I love a bit of a parody every now and again. So, you know, if you want to watch Spartacus, obviously, if you want to watch your historical epics, uh, watch Trumbo for the context for a bit of like artistic licensing in a biopic, that's fine. But really what you need to be watching is <laughs> the life of Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Life of Brian. You know, if you really want to kind of search the bottom of the parody barrel, there's also um, the legend of Awesomeus Maximus or Meet the Spartans. These are oh. kind of parody. <laughs> oh, meet, not, meet the Spartans, honestly. I mean, I'm not going to go in more, into more in this, but like Meet the Spartans just sounds, oh, so many things come to my head. Right, so I, many things uh, are in that movie. None of them are good, but there it is. There it is. <laughs> right, I'm going to move on to our next sort of little talking point then i referenced it a second ago and it's a question i want to pose to you uh really i have a very simple kind of opinion of it and we'll lead on to the text that we've kind of referred to but not named of the time that a contemporary to spartacus and came out probably within a five-year span or so would you say in your opinion since you love these epics and things that involve gladiators which usually are epic films and i know there are some shorter ones out there but obviously spartacus clocks in a, a whopping great big i think with the extended edition i think it's three hours and 18 minutes i think that's with the 12 yes. minutes added in in the Very extended long. version uh with intermission as well guys uh, and entree yes. <laughs> but do you think it is impossible to tell a gladiator roman or you know just a historical epic tale do you think it's impossible to tell one of those kinds of stories in under two hours or just two hours does it always have to be more than two hours to get the epicness across or do you think the cinematography think, should yeah. speak for itself That's a really good question and and there's certainly something about when we talk about the biblical epic or a historical epic, it needs to have that sense of something extending over time. And if it physically extends over a longer amount of time, I think for the spectator psychologically, it feels like, okay, I have invested a lot of time. I've seen a lot of history. This movie is longer. There are so many different kinds of gladiator movies. And I promise you there are some 80 minute ones that are just a little exploitation cinema jewel that does not need to be any longer. They don't. There are even gladiator TV shows like the Stars series Spartacus, which tells the same story as the film in a very different way. So you can tell those stories in episodic form and in short form, but I think that there is something attached to the length of that kind of film that we receive now as being something important 
I think there is something about audiences not wanting to watch movies that long anymore. <laughs> it's too long. <laughs> um, and when I saw Spartacus, I was trying to remember where I first saw it because I saw it in the cinema. It was a re-release and it was the full three hours plus. It had an actual intermission in the cinema where you, and it, it must have been some sort of uh, special performance because I, I went to see it. I was, I think, 14 and it felt very, <laughs> it felt very fancy. We had an intermission. You could go get a drink. And it was in a theater with a mezzanine and everything like that. So it felt very glamorous. It felt like it had that old Hollywood importance. So I think there is something about the actual physicality of, of a long movie that tells an important story. Um, that being said, that's, that is not what we tend to want now, especially in digital cinema. It becomes too expensive. Uh, you know, Zack Snyder, he's he's <laughs> not going to make a historical epic that, that that's that long. He's not. And I don't think we could handle it as spectators. The blood spatter intensity of it all would be would be too much. And then when you look at 300, um, mm. sort of a huge part of that runtime is actually slow motion. So, yeah. you know, if you played at regular speed, I think that film's quite short. So it's and that the kinetic propulsive energy of that film is very different than the unfolding of history in some of these other films. So I think it is part of, of an epic cinema. I think it's something that we don't necessarily want anymore, although Peter Jackson will extend a f epic over several films now. <laughs> I, I would say, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's an acquired taste and it depends on what type of subject you're choosing to use. I think whereas long films were the thing of the past with epic historical tales like Spartacus and a couple mm -hmm. others that I'll mention in a second, but I would say... I think nowadays it's more about because actually it takes me a while to realize and sort of think back to when I was because I'd never check how long the first two Harry Potters are like I know most of them are like two They're and a half hours long but the first two specifically I think it's the first one maybe even the second one is like three hours long yeah I actively watch it and I don't realize like you put it on and you think I didn't realize it was this long yeah I know for a fact that the others are long and I know that they're long films but I never really put a number to the film then shall we say whereas other films for instance like the ones from the era well obviously they feel longer they feel they do feel longer i think but yeah. that's probably to do with the way they're paced the way they're directed the performances because obviously in spartacus there's a lot of central moments where you have lots of talking but no talking if that makes sense you get the moments where they're in like i'm gonna cheapen this a little bit but where they're in like a sauna and they're just there like talking seriously uh the, the sauna shot, yep. <laughs> yeah, and, and you just casually... An important scene. <laughs> it was very important. And, and they're just like, they're there and they're very chill. And like, there's a bit of information given out in like little chunks, just out there, yeah. out there. And then, and you know... To those films, if you spend all that money and time on your cast of thousands and your your mise-en-scene like the set design and the costumes are beautiful mm. you just let the camera hang out so that your spectator can go ah well look at that and you just slow down to let them look at it whereas maybe in in a kind of digital cinema what you want is a kind of excessive flourish so people get everything thrown at their eyeballs at once so it, it, it's a slight difference i think in in what we expect from a historical film but when you watch something like the robe yeah. and its sequel demetrius and the gladiators if you watch the rise and fall of the roman empire an anthony mann film but i mean the, it, it's in the title it's the rise and fall of the roman empire like <laughs> at all so i think and some of these epics as well extend across generations so they just need that but and that was the trend as well they were roadshow epics which meant yeah you put them in the back of your truck you drive them around the country and they are this huge event like a circus yeah um so you want your money worth you yeah. want three and a half hours if this <laughs> is your big event
No, exactly. No, I, I couldn't agree more really with, to be honest, with, with on that side of things. I can understand that. And I think nowadays, I think we get the sense like, like you just pointed out quite well. Back then, they used to really make the most of the set design, the costumes, the actors, everything. Whereas now, I think it's much more about, like you mentioned, the Snyder Cut of Justice League. Uh, we think about Avengers Endgame. Those two films mm-hmm. particularly are the big, and obviously the Lord of the Rings films. Those are like the three ones that I think they are using the running time, not so much to show the talent or you know show off the art direction or the look of it. It's more meaningful and more story-based. But yeah, the examples I was going to sort of slowly bring in with these, the ones, the contemporary ones, since we're talking about running times, I've got a few little figures here. So obviously Spartacus, the version that I watched, three hours and 18 minutes. Uh, yeah, that's ben, the one I've seen. Ben-Hur, the 1959 film, so the year before, three hours and 44 minutes. Cleopatra, 1963. I, I didn't believe this when I read this. I, I, I still, I'm still a bit skeptical, but five hours and 20 minutes. Cleopatra didn't do very well. Yeah. <laughs> it's the one that people hold up as like, do you know why we don't make historical epics like this anymore? Cleopatra. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and like, I think they overstate that. I think it didn't do as badly as that, but it is one of those ones that did just didn't coalesce. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, and then you got the likes that you sort of simmer down to the like the Ten Commandments from 1956, a bit earlier, three hours and 40 minutes, only four minutes shorter than Ben-Hur, but you know. Chariot uh, race now. Yeah, chariot race. It's all down to the chariot race. And then finally, the one which bites my nerves so much because it is so boring and it's got the worst character in it ever. <laughs> I've said this over and over again, guys. I'm so sorry for anyone who actually likes Gone with the Wind, but I cannot stand it. <laughs> cannot stand it it should be so much shorter like you could make a short film of five minutes about that woman that vivian lee moaning her head off just like i I think i mean to be honest i think you just have a short 10 minute film like a pixar styled short film i know you wouldn't do it back in those days but like you could just condense that film so much better like i think personally the the film showboat is probably a better one set in a similar time period kind of obviously it doesn't have the civil war epicness of it but i think it's the atlanta burning yeah yeah it's a different subject matter altogether really but i think the whole following one person's story through the ages it does it much better in less time whereas obviously i think that's the thing with some of these epics like spartacus i think i oddly enjoyed it even when i first watched it like normally when i first watch things when they're really long things i think i'm not too keen enjoyed it every token inch of that love it I mean, yeah, I liked it because even though it's three hours and yes, it did go on for a long time, it really flowed. And I think that's probably a testament to Kubrick, really, if anything, as a director. And generally, I think because I like Kirk Douglas as a performer, I think he does some great work. Such a nice. Gene Simmons. I mean, it does. And there's something about that story of the story of a gladiator forced to fight against his will and then escaping the system, the corrupt system that, that confines him, that, that's a good story. And yeah. that's a story that I'm, I'm maybe more interested in seeing than some of the other epics. Um, and just on, on Gone with the Wind, which I'm, I, I, I don't like Gone with the Wind. It's not my favorite. <laughs> no. um, I teach a class on popular cinema and every year I teach the highest grossing film of all time. That's one week we'll, we'll look at the film, we'll talk about the, all the background. Um, and for the longest time it was Avatar, James Cameron's Avatar which is very long. It was over two discs when I bought it some time ago, and I was over it. I 
do not want to watch, teach, talk about, or even think about that film anymore. I'm done. I'm done with that film. And I got really excited uh, because I thought, okay, well, what if, what if I go to the, the highest grossing film of all time, adjusted for inflation, famously, that's Gone with the Wind. So I looked it up, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't think I can spend that much of my life watching Gone with the Wind again. So I was like, no, I can't do that to my students. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to teach Gone with the Wind. So finally, uh, Avengers Endgame saved me. But it, it is a very long film. So there's mm. something about the yeah. highest grossing films of all time, adjusted for inflation or not, that are yeah. just really long and emotional and melodramatic. I think generally it's, and to sort of wrap up this part of the podcast, I would say you really hit the nail on the head where it's event cinema. And that's why the films that are the top grossing always end up being the longest because they are legendary for their length, the topics they're using. The superhero genre has slowly taken over the 21st century, or at least this portion of it. So that's why that went up there. Obviously, computer-generated effects when they first came in, that's why Titanic and Avatar really did well because, you know, they're both long films, technological feats in their own right. And then obviously before then, it's all the epics like the likes of Ben-Hur, Ten Commandments, Cleopatra and Spartacus. The chariot race. Absolutely. Those special effects events and roadshow epics. These are these are events. They're they're big. I mentioned Kubrick a second ago, which will lead us on to this next point that I wanted to bring up. And that's. It's the least, I mean, up with Paths of Glory and, you know, his his very early work as well, his early, early work. It's the least Kubrickian, but it's probably the most next enjoyable one, even though it's a long one. I would say in terms of story content and really strong classic story, I would say, even though The Shining's filled with lots of ambiguity, I would say like The Shining and Spartacus are like my top two favorite story-based Kubrick ones. Whereas Spartacus... You can't see any obvious one-point perspective Kubrick stuff, but what do you reckon to the non-Kubrickian non-Kubrick Kubrick, I, it side of things? Get left left out. I mean, really solidly committed uh, scholars who study sort of altruism or who study Kubrick sometimes they forget they leave out Spartacus, and and that may be because it's made in 1960 in Hollywood. There's a pretty hard steer. You know, certainly he didn't have to do everything that studios told him. But it, it, the strictures were, were different in 1960 than in later films. In some ways, Spartacus, even though, of course, we mentioned doesn't end particularly happily, it is a more hopeful film than something like Full Metal Jacket. When I left Full Metal Jacket, I was like, I, we're doomed. All of humanity is doomed. But Spartacus, for all of its you know melodrama and, and tragedy and historical stakes and huge crucifixion theme, there's something of it that says this was worth it. We can do this. We can fight corrupt empires. So I think that for me, sometimes, you know, it's weird to say that the gladiator story is a hopeful one, but Spartacus feels a bit hopeful. Yeah. Um, and it might be, it might be the heavily Christian infused message of the film. Yeah. It feels more like it belongs to the tradition of the gladiator film and the historical epic than it does to the Kubrick oeuvre. Mm. So I think sometimes that's why Kubrick scholars don't want yeah. to talk about it. Yeah. And just before Christmas, I went out to a, a conference that was about it was about Spartacus because 60 years since Spartacus was released. And there were a lot of Kubrick scholars here and they were like, yes, we, we often don't talk about this film, but let's talk about this film. Let's talk about Kubrick's ideas of race. Let's talk about the politics. Let's talk about its, its sort of gendered representations of the Roman Empire, all that good stuff. 
So I think it is tied to it, the, its studio system and it's tied to the generic tradition of gladiator films and historical epics in a way that his genre exploding films later were, were not. You've kind of summed up most of what I would say. Uh, like I would say probably to sort of conclude this really is the fact that it's an epic film. If anyone listening to this is thinking of watching Spartacus and didn't know that it was part of the Kubrick pantheon, I sincerely check it out. I would definitely want to check it out because yes, it's three hours long. Both me and Lindsay have discussed how we don't really like all long films, but then there is an appreciation deep down that you need to sort of learn and earn with these long films because they're made for a reason. It's very well shot. I moan about the length of some films, but genuinely, if it's a good story, I will stick with it. And that is true for Spartacus. And that's why I'd rate Spartacus out of all the long films. And Kirk Douglas is great. And he's got disappearing hair at one point. I might have fallen. I don't know whether I blinked and I missed it, but I swear he starts off with like a weird brony tail thing, whatever the 60s called it. Oh, he's got a great kind of mullet ponytail situation. Yeah. That's his gladiator hair. And then it disappeared. Like, it's like, I mean, I suppose that's like symbolistic of like, I give up this this slavery lark and I'm just going to go off and I'm going to be free, which means I'm going to cut the brony tail off. Thank you so much for coming on, Lindsay. It's been amazing talking to you. I know we've been through such a lot in such what probably seems like a short amount of time, really, to talk about it. We could go on for hours and hours talking about this, just like the film itself. But thank you very much for coming on. I just wanted to, before to conclude, really, are there any, aside from Spartacus, are there any films that you're looking forward to seeing when, obviously, as of the recording of this, looking forward to getting back to sitting in the dark room? on a proper cinema screen. Are you looking forward to any particular films at all? Anything that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, I mean, I must admit, I am really looking forward to the upcoming opening of cinemas. And I, and I was saying to other people earlier, I almost don't care what I watch. I want to go back to the cinema. I want to be in that room. And I think for a little while, certainly the cinemas that I can get to will sort of be playing older films, which mm. I'm all right with. So I'd say that, you know, if you're seeing stuff like these historical films coming up in your local cinema, don't watch them on your phone. Watch Spartacus on the big screen. Like, enjoy the spectacle as it unfolds. Yeah, in terms of recommendations, I'd say if, if nothing new is coming up that you're really keen to see, just take this opportunity to support your local cinema and go see a big old movie that you're really going to sit in there and kind of enjoy yeah. uh, without distraction and in its full sort of especially surround sound glory. That's what I'm looking forward to. I echo that so much. And finally, could you give us a little plug for your book? Because you have recently published a brand new piece of work you mentioned at the beginning. What's it called? Can we find it in physical form, digital form? Where can we find it? Absolutely. So shameless plug. Uh, so my book just came out uh, last, just at the end of last year, so the end of 2020, which I'm quite glad because it marks the 20 year anniversary of the release of the film Gladiator and the 60 year anniversary of the film Spartacus. Uh, so it felt quite timely. It's called Are You Not Entertained? Sort of sub colon subtitle is Mapping the Gladiator Across Visual Media. So I'm pretty much looking at gladiators and asking why they're such a popular characters. Why do we really like to watch two men fighting to the death for our entertainment? Not to spoil anything there, but it's a, a potent cocktail of nostalgia, masculinity, eroticism, and celebrity. All mixed up. Two men enter, one man leaves. So that's my most recent book. Like I said, I was hoping for a toga party to celebrate, so I'll have to see how the summer unfolds. Well, I look forward to that toga party. I hope I get an invite to the toga party. Can we do a live Take All 97 special from the toga party? Toga party. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. Take 97 does the toga party. I, I, does I can't the wait. Toga party. Nice.
thank you so much Lindsay, for coming on it's been a blast having you on on this absolute bumper of an episode of discussing epics from mostly spartacus but all the way up to snyder to gone with the wind still not forgiving you it's been brilliant having you on again Lindsay. so thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure to talk to you about this and just open another film conversation really so thank you thank you very much david it's been great i'm always happy to talk gladiators and epics that's a wrap on take 97 the spartacus edition of the podcast or should i say epic film edition of the podcast uh with me your host david ingram and with me Lindsay steenberg thank you very much thank you very much guys tune into the next episode see you later